topic this morning is little addictions. <laughs> animals have egos. Some animals have faint, quite faint egos, and some have great big egos. But it's interesting to see what the ego does in animals or in little children. Oftentimes we can learn a good lesson from that. And so, for example, if you, uh, I'm sure you all know a dog who likes to play fetch. And so the dog brings you the stick. But what happens when you reach for the stick? The dog may even drop the stick at your feet. But when you reach for the stick, what happens? The dog picks it up and jumps back. <laughs> Why? Because he thinks it's in his best interest to keep anything that he has. Uh, and therefore, he will actually do something that's not in his own best interest. He will hold on to the stick, and you sometimes have to really tug hard to get it out of his mouth, even though you know that he wants to play catch with it. Uh, uh, a dog will do the same thing with a with an old uh, sock or old underwear or something. It doesn't want the old sock, but it'll hold on to the old sock. I mean, what's it going to do? Cut it up and put it over its alpo or something? It has no use for it whatsoever. But it's this whole thought: Oh, I've got to hang on to whatever it is I've got. This unquestioned premise. John. Uh, got a little game recently called uh, Hungry Hippos. So you have four hippos, and they're little marbles that come out into the, in the middle of this tray. And you push a little button behind each hippo, and it goes out and it eats the marble. And he invited me to play this with him. But he got very upset if my hippo ate a single marble. <laughs> <laughs> And that's all an addiction is. It's a little substitute for happiness that the ego has come up with. And we grab a hold of the substitute instead of the, the actual happiness. Now, addictions are usually defined as chemical dependencies. And then we get into the problem of how do you find, define all the other kinds of addictions. And so people come up with terms like psychological dependencies and compulsions and so forth. But actually, it's all one thing. There, there's really only one addiction, and that is the addiction to fear. And we've talked about how just saying the fear out loud will help release the fear. If you haven't tried that yet, you might do it. Nothing, no change in behavior is called for. Certainly, it's not necessary to, to fight the compulsion or the addiction. But just to see the fear behind it. And this is also uh, an aid to communication with a good friend or the person you're living with. Is to state the fear rather than the desire. It's, it's often said that two people should sit down and say what they want. But notice what happens if you do that. You automatically have a standoff position. 
But if two people will go below the want or the little addiction to the fear, then they both have something that they can give up because no one wants to be afraid. Uh, this happened to Gail and me just uh, a couple days ago. We had some guys out there that were building kitchen cabinets for us. Uh, and they came in with one more revised estimate as to how much this was going to cost. <laughs> uh, almost doubling the price of the uh, whole thing. So, as in every relationship, Gail and I immediately took our tired old ego positions over this thing. This is what we, all, this is what we always do in a relationship. You fall back to your, your old position. And so, at first, we made the mistake of saying what we wanted. Um, I said I wanted the kitchen cabinets uh, because I would like to be able to put everything up we could, so we could once again use our counter space. <laughs> uh, and Gail said that she wanted to pay our quarterly taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a standoff position. Uh, so we, because oh, uh, the fact is that we haven't made our quarterly payments on time in uh, the 17 years we've been married, and we've we've done just fine without kitchen cabinets for uh, 12 years out there on Tonto Road. So this is, of course, not what we wanted. It's why suddenly does this come upon us that we have to have kitchen cabinets and pay the quarterly tax? So we paused a moment, went beyond what we thought we wanted to what we feared. Because if you actually are stating what you want, then there's peace in that, and it includes every living thing. This is how you can tell if it's a true want. It brings rest and relaxation to everyone mm -hmm. around you. If you want something that automatically puts you in opposition with the world or with another person, then it isn't a want, it's actually a fear that the ego has made into a want and therefore made into a little substitute for happiness. So he went below the, the fear. My fear was I didn't want to tell these guys to stop the project. They'd already bought the wood and so forth. I was embarrassed to say, well, we don't have enough money, and please stop the project. And so forth. Um, Gail's fear was that sooner or later the IRS was going to notice our behavior. <laughs> Uh, descend on us uh, like uh, the grasshoppers descend on your new vegetable garden. Uh, so we pipped Allah. To those of you who haven't come here regularly, I'm sure you don't understand this great concise statement of wisdom. Pause in peace and act with assurance. So we paused in peace, sat down, closed our eyes, and went into our heart to see what we wanted to do. Uh, and I thought, uh, when we opened them, I said, uh, I think I'll write a new book. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you thought I had this holy inspiration for these books, didn't you? Uh, this, now the truth comes out. This is the real inspiration for each, each number. 
I'll tell you another fact. It's, it's true of almost every other author. But suddenly I was inspired to write a new book. <laughs> Called my editor and asked her, how much could I get for a new book? <laughs> so there will be a book. <laughs> on great love relationships. And actually, I think it's going to be a, a good book. Gail and I are going to collaborate on it, and we'll, we've talked about that here. As a lot of you know, Gail and I do a lot of marriage counseling. People who want to form a holy relationship, as A Course in Miracles terms it, or a great love relationship. So we thought we might just put all this in the book, and at the same time, solve the kitchen cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how central fish are to Christianity. I know you don't see the connection here. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but throughout the gospel, I thought we should be a real, you know, the real churches cite scripture. And so I thought maybe we should do that. We could be a real church for at least one day here. And in the gospel, uh, there's all these things about fish, you know, getting the money out of the fish's mouth. And disciples were, many of them were fishermen. And they returned to fishing afterwards, after Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And many, many different things about fish in there. And according to uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, Peter and Andrew were out fishing when Jesus came along. Uh, another gospel has it that they were actually more than that fishing. And so the story varies. But in Matthew and Mark, uh, Jesus comes along and says to Peter and to Andrew, wouldn't you rather be fishers of men? And... Uh, they put down their, their nets. They leave their nets and so forth. And they follow him. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens after the crucifixion. It's all over and the, the disciples are huddled together in fear of the Jews and so forth. And, um, Jesus makes a couple of appearances. And then... Um, Peter suggests that they all go fishing again. They return to this. So in effect, he's saying, well, that was nice. <laughs> uh, I don't know what happened there, but uh, <laughs> I think we should get back to business. Uh, and so indeed they did. And according to the Gospel of John, it was several disciples uh, that, that did this. They started fishing again. Now, they're out there fishing, and they look over, and John recognizes Jesus on the shore. And he's, uh, there's a little bed of coals and so forth, and he's preparing fish. And he asks them, you know, how, how much fish have you caught? Their catch has not been good, and so forth. And he suggests that they... That they cast their net on the right side. And the Gospel of John says that there are so many fish that they can't even pull it up. They actually have to, Peter has to jump out of the boat and so forth, and they have to actually have to drag the net in 
to the shore in order to get all the fish in. Jesus prepares the fish for them and gives it to them and eats with them. Now you might think that he would be angry about this. Here they have forgotten everything that he said. Over and over again he's asked them to go out and to spread this gentle teaching and to help people, to heal people and show them the way. And what's happened? He's just gone a few days. <laughs> and suddenly uh, they're back fishing. Not only did he not condemn them, he showed them how to make a big catch and he prepared fish for them to eat. And one of the mistakes that we make about our little addictions is that we fight the addiction and thereby become an addict. Because if we fight the addiction, then of course it is our desire. We're saying it's our desire. And when we call someone else on their addiction or point it out or give them helpful hints as to how they can be a better person, we, of course, are saying this desire is central to your being. You are a blank, whatever it may be, whatever the little addiction is that we're, we're pointing out. And this example is so lovely. I've talked to you about a, a doctor here in, here in town. Uh, I haven't mentioned his name because the point is not that there's this man over there because... As we've discussed also, there's so many different teachers here in Santa Fe. This is just one of them. But a friend of mine went to him recently, uh, to this man who's a swami. Um, a doctor from India. He was Gandhi's doctor and so forth. And uh, he said, I have a, a, well, I'm addicted to uh, dope, smoke dope. Very heavily. And the man said, oh, grass or God, your choice. <laughs> and that was all he said about it. And then he went to helping him physically. Helping him help relieve the symptoms from the addiction but said no more about the addiction. Of course, the addiction was gone within a few days. That's, and that, the reason is, is that he sided with him and not with the addiction. He made him important and not the addiction. And when we, ever, whenever we point out someone's fault, we are making the fault more important, more important than the person. And we were telling them, we're giving them actually an impossible task. We're saying, you should be further along than you are. And how can anyone be further along than they are? There's no way for that to happen. So I thought what we probably should have is a little fish meditation. Don't you think that would be appropriate? So if you'll close your eyes. We are all walking along a stream. Gentle, cool water. That's, in fact, what we are doing. This stream of peace that flows from the heart of God. We're walking along beside this lovely stream that turns into a river. 
and that leads to the ocean. To the sea of God's peace. And to our home which is clear and still and completely surrounds us. But notice that as you walk along the stream, there are little fish swimming in the stream. These fish are your thoughts. They are not the clear water. They are something else that appears to be in the water. They're just swimming around there. And notice your option. You can stop if one of the fish catches your eye. And you can fish for it. Or you can continue your walk toward the ocean of God's love for you. I will be quiet and for just a moment see some of these little fish that are swimming around in your head in the pool of your mind. And notice that you don't have to grab the fish. See that you can let it swim by. So in silence, just identify a few of these little fish that swim around in your mind. Okay. You see, some people feel guilty just about having fish. They go fishing, but they're They feel guilty about the whole thing. Just the whole thought of the fish and catching the fish and so forth. Or even having the fish. And we feel guilty about just having thoughts. We're not supposed to have thoughts. And of course, the thoughts or the fish are just little forms of fear. But there is no addiction unless we reach into the water and catch a fish or drop our line into the water and pull one out. That's the only time that there is an addiction. And the interesting thing that happens is if you let the fish just swim, they will appear to swim more and more deeply. And they will appear to fade as they go deeper and deeper. And eventually they will appear to just disappear altogether. As I know you've had happen in some prayer or meditation or some moment. The little thoughts, the little fish became so dim that there was nothing left but you. Your serenity, your peace. The clear, clear water of your being. So let's carry this analogy much further than any person should carry it. I'll just. (laughs) There's, of course, catching the fish, and we all are still doing that. We do, in fact, see a fish that seems to have some charge for us, and we go after the fish, and now we've got it. Now, the best thing to do, the best thing to do, of course, is never to reach in and get one of these thoughts, to never single one of these thoughts out and say, oh, yes, that identifies me. That's what I am. That's what I feel. That's where I'm going. That's what I've been. That's what kind of person I am. The best thing, of course, is never to do that in the first place. But none of us are at that point. We are going to pull out a fish. 
And we're going to do this over and over again. The best thing to do is to throw the fish back in. That's the best thing you can possibly do. Is not to carry this procedure out that the ego has in mind for you. Now some people, of course, when they catch a fish, they immediately throw it to someone else to clean. They're not going to clean the fish, you see. And how often do we... Do we, we feel some criticism about someone, especially if they're being talked about nicely and we, we have this little juicy bit of information. We, we, we're throwing the fish to someone else to clean, you see. We, in effect, are saying, uh, I'm above fishing, even though I've just caught one. <laughs> I'm too spiritual to clean the fish, but you, you gross person, <laughs> here is a little piece of gossip for you to rake over and so forth uh, Gail and I did this very thing just recently there is a uh, there are actually more than one but there is one religion in particular that believes that children are possessed by a demon or by uh, a, uh, a spirit that must be broken uh, so there are some fundamentalist uh, religions and some other kinds of religions that, that believe this. And this is based on certain passages that are interpreted to mean that from the Bible. This particular religion, uh, from my observation, uh, it, it seems often that, the, that they uh, come very close to child abuse in, in trying to uh, break the spirit. Now, they think this is well-meaning. They believe that this is what they should do. But very often, people are... Um, the little kids are beaten up over and over again. Well, it so happens that this man's uh, ex-wife had just married uh, a man from this particular religion. And now looking back on the conversation, this is why this pausing before and after is so helpful. Because I didn't see it at the time. But because Gail and I paused before we had dinner, and then we paused after and looked back, I saw my mistake. I think I'm much less likely to make it again. So he was telling about how uh, his kids were being abused. He'd gotten one of them back because... Uh, it was so apparent of the physical damage that had been done, but that the other one was still being beaten up. Well, I, of course, had my stories to tell. Now, looking back, and I told my stories about this. Now, looking back, I, did I, was that a service for me to do that? No, that just increased his fear. I thought I was joining him and a diatribe against what was going on. But I wasn't. Because I was joining his fear. And whenever we join someone's fear, we're hurting them. Now, it was perfectly all right for me to listen and, and, and show concern and interest in his story, but I didn't have to feed it. I didn't have to add to the whole thing. So, going on with our analogy, cleaning the fish could be the first step that the ego 
presents to us after we pull the fish out of the water. Cleaning it is simply a, an analogy for uh, a preoccupation. We open it, the thought up. We look it all over. We do different things with it. So after you reach in with this thought, which may come as a feeling or an emotion or a memory or another person's image coming to your mind or some event, we reach in and we pull it out. Then the preoccupation or the cleaning begins. And cooking the fish could uh, be similar to then taking the thought and applying it to our life. So the reason I'm spelling these positions out is because at any time that you can stop this process, you will return to peace. You will begin your walk once again beside the river and you will come closer to the sea of God. So if you can recognize any of these stages, you can then say, do I want to go on to the next stage? So first we grab the thought and then we get preoccupied with the thought. And then we say, well, how can I apply this to my life? So now we start thinking about what do we need to do about this? You haven't yet done anything. So this is cooking the fish. We cook it in our mind. What does this call for? Because now this thing, this little addiction, has become very important. And then the last stage is that we eat the fish, which means that we do, in fact, act it out. And as we talked about several times here, this is a, a misconception uh, it's a popular misconception of what was probably a very good theory, the cathartic theory, that somehow by shouting at the clerk, you become less angry. <laughs> um, or by beating up your child, you clear the air, or whatever the thing is. Uh, the, the, the whole thought that by acting something out, this gets rid of it. Of course it doesn't get rid of it. Uh, just this the study of mnemonics shows that, in fact, it, it may even reinforce it. Because now you've added to the problem. Not only did you think you had this desire, but now you think you're someone who carries the desire out. And as soon as you act it out, you have brought other people into the whole thing. Just as telling people about something brings them into it. And after we've brought enough people into any addiction, any thought, any emotion, it now becomes this thing that's out there. And we have all these people involved in it. And it seems to be a mass that we can't get our hands on. And if that's not enough, the ego has one last stage. And that is picking over the bones. That's feeling guilty. So, and you can feel guilty forever. Because you have done it. You've done it. It's now there. This thing. You gossip. You lied. You struck someone. You tried to get someone fired. You actually did this. You were so angry. Maybe you got them fired. You made someone else feel guilty. You took their behavior and shoved it in their face. Or maybe we're just sour all day. Puckered up everybody. 
But you did it. It is now done. Is there anything that can be done about that? Of course not. If you think you did it, it is there. So as soon as you start feeling guilty, now you've placed this thing in your past and there is nothing you can do. And how many conversations have we had with our spouse or with a good friend about this thing we once did? And we say, yes, I've atoned for it so many times. We don't use that word, but we point out all the wonderful things. Yes, but you did this. And we say, oh, yes, we did it. It's there forever. If you did it. Of course, in Miracle says, the reason that forgiveness can be so simple is you didn't do it. It, in fact, did not happen. No damage was done. It doesn't matter that you think that you hurt someone very deeply. If you leave it at that, then there is this dark hole in your past. And the ego thinks you are nothing but your past. That when you die, that's all that there will be of you is your past. And here is this dark hole. Or maybe 50 dark holes. But if you return to the present and you walk along the stream and you just look at the fish and you smile at the fish and what they're up to, but you continue your walk, then the present becomes more real than the past because only God is in the present, which means only you are in the present. And so the present is something we bring ourselves back to over and over again. Very gently we return to this moment, to this instant, and say, I have no place to go but home, and I'm surrounded by home. I have nothing to remember but home, and I've never left home. And the present grows like some splendorous castle that surrounds you, filled with jewels and lights, and rooms of freedom and windows that let in sunshine. Before it seemed so unreal. The addiction to little fears, because everything that's an addiction, everything that's a compulsion, is in fact a fear. is very similar to the addictions that we think of. Addictions like smoking. and Incidentally, those people told me beforehand that they were going to leave. <laughs> see, I want to, to wait until you grabbed hold of the fish, do you see? Actually, another person's told me he's going to leave. So, I have another opportunity. <laughs> so, what happens is that we, uh, uh, let's say that, uh, let's say that you smoke. You've already noticed that you smoke at certain times. 
Now, let's take smoking. As, now, the real addiction, of course, is simply a fear. So what is the smoking supposed to do? Well, the smoking is supposed to make us feel more comfortable. And that's a good desire, to feel more comfortable. But uh, we have a friend, uh, Gail and I have a friend who uh, we used to go to the movies with every once in a while. And uh, after the movie, uh, she would light up a cigarette. This was, uh, this was just had to be done. Now, look at the position that this puts everyone in. She's not supposed to be smoking in the theater. We now have to wait there for a cigarette. So we're feeling a little edgy because pretty soon we know the manager's <coughs> going to come down and so forth. Everyone's looking at her because she's... Does she feel more comfortable? <laughs> well, of course, there's nothing she can do about it. I'm not saying that there's anything she should do about it. But what I'm saying is that look what the ego does. It gives us a substitute that actually causes the very opposite of what we are seeking. So, of course, no one can, can smoke in a place where they're not supposed to smoke in peace, and yet it's a little peace that the cigarette's supposed to give. But never tell anyone they're not supposed to smoke. Because if you tell them that, you're telling them that they are a smoker. They're not a smoker, they're a child of God. It doesn't matter what your imaginary identity is up to. Does it really matter? We all have an imaginary identity, the ego. It does all kinds of crazy things. There's a, uh, there used to be, I don't know if it's still in existence, there used to be an uh, alcoholic treatment center in Upper New York State called Tracy Farms. It was started by a man named Vincent Tracy. He wrote a book called No Hiding Place. Some of you may have read that. And I once visited this place. I had a friend who was there, and I got to hear him give a couple of talks. At that time, it was the most uh, successful alcoholic treatment uh, facility there was. He was very proud of the fact he had even edged out AA. He, his statistics were even better than theirs. Of course, this is all very scientific, and not very scientific because AA doesn't keep statistics. <laughs> it's, it's, however, it's assumed uh, a certain percentage of cures. And I was just fascinated by his talk. Here was a man who'd been on the Bowery and uh, had thrown away everything. He'd had a very high position in industry and uh, literally ended up uh, sleeping in little cardboard boxes and having to worry about getting his neck slit at night and all this kind of stuff. What had happened to him was very dramatic. It doesn't have to be dramatic. He had one of those experiences in which the light shines on the glass, that kind of so he decided to devote his life to helping other people. He bought this little piece of property and with uh, from people who gave him the money. And here was this room uh, that was filled mostly with religious leaders for some reason that was interesting. Um, and he told them that they should not give up drinking. That they should completely forget about that as a goal. They should make instead their goal to be a morally responsible human being. That was his term. He used it over and over again. A morally responsible human being. He said once you make that your goal, the drinking won't be there anymore because you cannot drink and be a morally responsible human being. But you cannot make your goal fighting the drinking 
and become a morally responsible human being because that's not your purpose. Your purpose is to get rid of something. He said instead, add something. And so all the little addictions that we get caught up in evaporate so easily if we make simple peace and giving the gift of peace to others our goal. Then we look back one day and we realize we're not smoking. I tried to give up television so often, over and over again. I remember uh, Gail and I once took uh, the TV sets down to a little house. We put them down there. But then the Dallas Cowboys came. <laughs> well, we'll just bring it up for the Dallas Cowboys and then we'll take it back down. And we did that for a while. And we said, gosh, you know, it's an awful lot of trouble to lug these things. But pretty soon, we, I'm not, probably all of you have gone through it. It never worked. I was in um, the uh, grocery store the other day. And I was at the uh, little counter. And there was TV Guide. And I thought, should I buy TV Guide? I haven't watched television. I thought, I haven't watched television now in, gosh, almost a year. I keep buying TV Guide. <laughs> and suddenly I realized, oh, it just fell away. I didn't even notice it. There was no decision. Other things became more interesting. And that, of course, is how the ego itself, which is nothing but a little package of addictions, a little package of forms of fear, <clears throat> falls away. We just simply lose interest in it because we start discovering that we are in fact something else. And as we walk closer and closer, it seems like a journey, it seems like we're going there. These little things fall away. The only exception is if there is some compulsion or addiction that is really dominating your mind so that you can't continue this walk. Then, of course, do something to put that behind you doesn't necessarily have to be given up. It can be simply controlled. But do whatever you need to do for the time being so you can continue your walk. I've listed uh, six real addictions. So we have the ego addictions, the little form the fear takes. And here are six real addictions, simply meaning that here are, the way, here are some ways that fear often comes to us. And I'd like to just run through them right quickly. The first one we've talked about already. It's the easiest of all to let go of. And that's discouragement. And as we've talked about before, this is so easy. But this is the current addiction. Because the children of God have turned around. The world has begun its awakening. And this is the current deterrent that the ego is using, is discouragement. And also, as we've said so often, it's based on the belief that our life should look different because of our efforts. That there should be some change in our life because of the spiritual efforts we are making. And that, of course, is not true. There will be this wake, like suddenly noticing that you're no longer doing this particular thing. You look back and you see, oh, it dropped away. There will be this wake of peace. There will be a, a general diminishing of, of violence in your life so that, so that these huge things 
I mean, in other words, you will no longer dynamite the fish. <laughs> so you'll go to general, more general and general forms. But this is a very natural thing, and it, it has to do with as the slugging match. We start out with the slugging match with the world, with all of our relationships, with our job, with our health, with our body. Our body's betraying us. We actually hate our body. But we're not, we're not acting out some tragedy. Well, if you'd say that with me, I am not acting out some tragedy. I am not acting out some tragedy. So, discouragement is easily dismissed because it's based on such ridiculous little thoughts. The thought that the truth is not simple, that the way is not easy, and that there's not someone beside us. So if you'll just turn and look at it, you can let it go. Nothing more than that is needed. Just turn and look at the discouragement, see the premise that it's based on, and say, I do not have time for this. I am beyond thinking that there should be some reward in my life for my spiritual efforts. The reward for God is more God. The reward for our efforts to love is more love, but that does not mean that a particular person will behave in a different manner. It means we will feel more love. The second one is irritation. We've talked about that before. And we've talked about how when the irritation occurs, if you will look for one of these little fish, instead of trying to justify why you're irritated, you will see why you're irritated. The fish is still there, so you've just gotten irritated. Take a second, look back, and see what thought was in your mind just before you became irritated. And you will see that there was a form of fear, a form of loneliness, a form of desperation, and now came something into your life that symbolized it. So you're not really mad at this particular person or this turn of events. Look at the little fish that was swimming around. Notice that you grabbed it. It was there. It's still there. If you'll pause soon enough after the irritation, you will find it still swimming around. And now you'll see that the whole thing was very impersonal. It had nothing to do with this individual. And that actually behind the fear itself was this deep longing, this very good and true longing. The ego has no greater addiction than the addiction to sacrifice and martyrdom. Do not be addicted to sacrifice. Your Father in heaven cannot receive the gift of sacrifice. Do not martyr yourself for God or for a spiritual path. God cannot receive the gift of martyrdom. The path to happiness is a happy path. If our way is not happy, we are not walking the path. The path to gentleness is soft. It's quiet. If our life is not soft and quiet at the moment, what we are doing is not being asked of us 
So do not pray one second longer than you want to pray. A prayer that doesn't come from pure joy is of no use to you or to the world. Do not decide how often you must pray. But ask yourself, would I like to? And then watch your sense of enjoyment. And the minute the sense of enjoyment ends, end the prayer. Because nothing else will take you to God except pure enjoyment. The ego has no greater addiction than the desire to feel special. And this is so sad. And you've put behind you so many forms of specialness. Just as I have. Just as we all have. There's still a number left. So we, we buy a new car. We get a new spouse. Or we have a new child. Or something like that. And uh, to feel special. But what does it do? It makes us feel cut off. Now the ego will present you a, a solution to that. And that is that you must suffer in order to be equal with everyone else. So one of the things that will happen is that as you go along and you cease your slugging match with your life, and you see this melting of problems, and you begin noticing that you're not as sick anymore. You're not as accident prone. And friends don't leave you in the burst of rage they used to. <laughs> And maybe there are not as many deaths. And you will look around and you will see a brother or a sister who's having this. And you will feel first a sense of pride. Ah, I'm further along. Yes, you are further along. But what is the ego's solution to that? It is that you must now suffer and somehow go back into these forms in order to be equal to your brother or your sister. That is to identify your brother or your sister with their misery. If you are thinking how far along you are, can you realize your oneness with God? That's the reason to let go of pride. is because pride pertains to the progress or the dissolving, the diminishing, the relinquishment of an ego. And so if we if, if we're constantly asking ourselves, how far along am I? How can we realize our oneness with God? There's, of course, no way to do that. Another ego addiction is excitement. This is a, a, a typically American addiction. So Americans are constantly doing things to feel this charge of adrenaline. And it'll come through a number of different ways. Changing our location moving to another city, changing our job, breaking up our marriage, that kind of thing, big, big drastic changes, <coughs> as well as little things. It's very close to feeling special, but it's, a, it's an actual sensation. And when you begin your journey home and you begin to see the deep pleasure it is to talk to your father, your ego will say, yes, but... You need more than this. This is a little bit boring. It's not exciting enough. And so you'll begin to, to, to strive for certain things that, you, that your ego will tell you indicates how far along you are. And hearing a voice is one of those. Hearing a voice indicates nothing about how far along you are. 
because everyone is receiving guidance in some way. It doesn't matter about the voice. It doesn't matter about precognitions. It doesn't matter whether or not you have out-of-the-body experiences. But the ego will now turn to those as a form of excitement. But it's also a form of separation. It doesn't bring comfort. And the last one is abandonment. Abandonment is as close as you can come to fear as the root of the ego. The ego is pure fear, and the fear is the fear of abandonment. And so we think because of what we have done, how we brought all this about, or because something that God has done, or the universe, that we have been abandoned. And so we play out these little scenes of abandonment. And the world is doing this over and over and over again. We see everything as abandoned. We see animals as abandoned. We see our children as abandoned. We see them growing up and abandoning us. We think we've been abandoned by our parents. They think we've abandoned them. Our dreams are dreams of abandonment. Our fantasies show this kind of loss. The movies and the novels, there's a central theme of loss, of people leaving us. The great so-called love stories that bring hundreds of thousands to the movie theaters are, are ones in which there is a leaving and a loss this is all so foolish because we haven't gone anywhere and God has never left us. And so I'd like for us to close with a final prayer. Your body sits on a chair. Your arms are folded or your hands are clasped. You feel the pressure of the clothes. You feel the pressure of the seat below you. You hear the sounds. That little picture of yourself is alone. It sits in a chair. The person beside you doesn't know what you're thinking now. Your own child, your own mother, your own father. They do not understand the deep longing that you have in life. What you want to do. That little thing that sits in the chair grows older. It will leave soon. And as you think about it, you're not sure what will happen to you. A little life that's so short, it's forgotten so quickly by the people around you. And what did it add up to? Do not be afraid to say it added up to nothing. Because if you see that it is merely a little body, a little pile of zeros, then you can turn your eyes to glory. And you can find your mind in the mind of God. And you can see the stream that runs beside you, sparkling 
filled with light, with lovely sounds of splashing water, leaving a trail of green everywhere it branches out. You can see that stream begin to widen and deepen. A stream of gentleness, a stream of love that's growing inside your heart. You know it is. You felt your heart soften. Your way's a little easier now. You let go of misery a little quicker now. That stream is a little closer now. You're beginning to recognize it. And more and more people, this longing for home, this homeward journey, this happy journey, <clears throat> leave where you are now on this journey and see what is before you. The stream grows wider. It's pure love. This absolute light. It broadens and broadens. It laps around the ankles of all your brothers and sisters and every living thing. It fills them with light, with peace and rest. And now you see you are that stream, that outpouring of love from God. You have no other function but to be happy. Happiness is God, and it is the only gift and the only duty and the only work and the only function that you have. And look down the road and see that you will see that. You are this river. And that river is one with the river in the heart of everyone else. And now you enter the great ocean. You cannot see it now, but looking down the road you see it. This great ocean of splendor. Your home. Go home now for just a second. Relax in your father's arms. And say thank you because you never left me until I arrived home. Thank you, Father. It is so good to be home. When you open your eyes and when you leave this room, make your single purpose to make every single person to feel at home.